Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales, week two of Nikolai Gogol. Uh, we are going to have The Cloak. We are going to have Memoirs of a Madman. We're going to have The Nose. We are going to have some other stuff in there. We're going to have, uh, let's see, what's that other one? I got to scan through my notes here. Uh, uh, Inspector General. We're going to break that up throughout the week. So you're going to hear a uh, play of Inspector General throughout the week. And you know what? None of this could be possible without our friends over at bunnyslippers.com. Get yourself some Highland Cow slippers. They are... I'm recording my living room right now. Actually, technically, I think I'm in the kitchen. But I'm on linoleum floors, and my feet are nice and warm. Why? Because I've got some woolly, woolly Highland Cow slippers. And oh man, do they keep my feet warm. And I look cool because I'm wearing my Bad News Bears three-quarter length sleeve because it's kind of chilly in here. You know, not, not cold enough that I need to put a sweater on, but then I've got a three-quarter length sleeve shirt on and a hoodie. Yeah, I've got a hoodie on. I've got a Black Clock Audio Tales hoodie on from our shop over at pgttcm.com. So, you know, found item clothing, Black Clock Audio Tales, pgttcm.com, shop at the places that support us and support us by shopping at our store. If you want to support us, you can go to Facebook, you can go to Twitter, you can go to Instagram, you can go to any place that you find podcasts and rate and review us. Let people know, because honestly, that helps. And you know what? I've had other people pretty much vandalize <laughs> vandalize uh uh, my uh, iTunes because they had problems with me that were totally unrelated to the podcast because I didn't want to review a book or because I uh, like an asshole uh, I'm, I'm sorry a jerk uh, posted some email that was like them trying to be cool and being like how I should have them on my show and it's like that's not what kind of podcast this is I don't just have writers who write fiction and horror come on the show but hey if you know stuff if you look at our schedule and you see something that you want to talk about contact me on facebook or instagram and i'll get you on the show and you know what that's the best way to find us and help out the show by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm here we go with some google all right Recording by Tony Addison Taras Bulba and Other Tales by Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol St. John's Eve A story told by the sacristan of the Dikinka Church Tomar Grigrovich had one very strange eccentricity. To the day of his death, he never liked to tell the same thing twice. There were times when, if you asked him to relate a thing afresh, he would interpolate new matter, or alter it so that it was impossible to recognize it. Once upon a time, one of those gentlemen who, like the usurers at our yearly fairs, clutch and beg and steal every sort of frippery, and issue mean little volumes, no thicker than an ABC book, every month, or even every week, 
wormed this same story out of Toma Grigrovich, and the latter completely forgot about it. But that same young gentleman in the pea-green captain came from Poltova, bringing with him a little book, and opening it in the middle, showed it to us. Toma Grigorovitch was on the point of setting his spectacles astride of his nose, but I recollected that he had forgotten to wind thread about them and stick them together with wax, so he passed it over to me. As I understand nothing about reading and writing, and do not wear spectacles, I undertook to read it. I had not turned two leaves when all at once he caught me by the hand and stopped me. Stop! Tell me first what you are reading! I confess that I was a trifle stunned by such a question. What? What am I reading, Toma Grigorovitch? Why your own words? Who told you that they were my words? Why, what more would you have? Here it is printed, related by such and such a sacristan. Spit on the head of the man who printed that. He lies, the dog of a Moscow puddler. Did I say that? "'Twas just the same as though one hadn't his wits about him. "'Listen, I'll tell the tale to you on the spot.' "'We moved up to the table, and he began. "'My grandfather, the kingdom of heaven be his. "'May he eat only wheaten rolls and poppy-seed cakes with honey in the other world. "'Could tell a story wonderfully well.' When he used to begin a tale, you could not stir from the spot all day, but kept on listening. He was not like the storyteller of the present day, when he begins to lie, with a tongue as though he had nothing to eat for three days, so that you snatch your cap and flee from the house. I remember my old mother was alive then, and in the long winter evenings, when the frost was crackling out of doors, and had sealed up hermetically the narrow panes of our cottage, she used to sit at her wheel, drawing out a long thread in her hand, rocking the cradle with her foot, and humming a song, which I seem to hear even now. The lamp, quivering and flaring up as though in fear of something, lighted up our cottage. The spindle hummed, and all of us children, collected in a cluster, listened to Grandfather, who had not crawled up the stove for more than five years, owing to his great age. But the wondrous tales of the incursions of the Zaporozhian Cossacks and the Poles, the bold deeds of Potkova, of Polta Kozuch, and Sagaidachny did not interest us so much as the stories about some deed of old, which always sent a shiver through our frames, and made our hair rise upright on our heads. Sometimes such terror took possession of us in consequence of them, that from that evening forward, heaven knows how wonderful everything seemed to us. If one chanced to go out of the cottage after nightfall for anything, one fancied that a visitor from the other world had lain down to sleep in one's bed and I have often taken my own smock at a distance, as it lay at the head of the bed, for the evil one rolled up into a ball. But the chief thing about Grandfather's stories was that he never lied in all his life, and whatever he said was so, was so. I will now tell you one of his wonderful tales. I know that there are a great many wise people who copy in the courts, 
and can even read civil documents, but who, if you were to put into their hand a simple prayer book, could not make out the first letter in it, and would show all their teeth in derision. These people laugh at everything you tell them. Along comes one of them, and doesn't believe in witches. Oh, yes, glory to God that I have lived so long in the world. I have seen heretics to whom it would be easier to lie in confession than it would be to our brothers and equals to take snuff, and these folk would deny the existence of witches. But let them just dream about something, and they won't even tell what it was. There. It is no use talking about them. No one could have recognized the village of ours a little over a hundred years ago. It was a hamlet, the poorest kind of a hamlet. Half a score of miserable farmhouses, unplastered and badly thatched, were scattered here and there about the field. There was not a yard or a decent shed to shelter animals or wagons. That was the way the wealthy lived. And if you had looked for our brothers, the poor, why, a hole in the ground, that was a cabin for you. Only by the smoke could you tell that a God-created man lived there. You ask why they lived so? It was not entirely through poverty. Almost everyone led a raiding Cossack life and gathered not a little plunder in foreign lands. It was rather because it was little use building up a good wooden house. Many folk were engaged in raids all over the country. Crimeans, Poles, Lithuanians. It was quite possible that their own countrymen might make a descent and plunder everything. Anything was possible. In this hamlet a man, or rather a devil in human form, often made his appearance. Why he came and whence no one knew. He prowled about, got drunk, and suddenly disappeared as if into the air, leaving no trace of his existence. Then, behold, he seemed to have dropped from the sky again, and went flying about the street of the village, of which no trace now remains, and which was not more than a hundred paces from Dikanka. He would collect together all the Cossacks he met. Then there were songs, laughter, and cash in plenty, and vodka flowed like water. He would address the pretty girls, and give them ribbons, earrings, strings of beads, more than they knew what to do with. It is true that the pretty girls rather hesitated about accepting his presence. God knows, perhaps, what unclean hands they had passed through. My grandfather's aunt, who kept at that time a tavern, in which Basabryuk, as they called this devil-man, often caroused, said that no consideration on the earth would have induced her to accept a gift from him. But then, again, how avoid accepting? Fear seized on every one when he knit his shaggy brows and gave a sidelong glance which might send your feet God knows whither. Whilst if you did accept, then the next night some fiend from the swamp with horns on his head came and began to squeeze your neck if there was a string of beads upon it, or bite your finger if there was a ring upon it, or drag you by the hair if ribbons were braided in it. God have mercy then on those who held such gifts. But here was the difficulty. It was impossible to get rid of them. If you threw them into the water, 
the diabolical ring or necklace would skim along the surface and into your hand. There was a church in the village, St. Pantella, if I remember rightly. There lived there a priest, Father Atanasi of blessed memory. Observing that Basavriuk did not come to church even at Easter, he determined to reprove him and impose penance upon him. Well, he hardly escaped with his life. Hark ye, sir, he thundered in reply. Learn to mind your own business instead of meddling in other people's. If you don't want that throat of yours stuck with boiling kutcha. A dish of rice or wheat flour with honey and raisins, which is brought to the church on the celebration of memorial masses. What was to be done with this unrepentant man? Father Athanasii contented himself with announcing that anyone who should make the acquaintance of Pazabriuk would be counted a Catholic, an enemy of Christ's Orthodox Church, not a member of the human race. In this village there was a Cossack named Korts, who had a laborer whom people called Peter the Orphan, perhaps because no one remembered either his father or mother. The church elder, it is true, said that they had died of the pest in his second year, but my grandfather's aunt would not hear of that, and tried with all her might to furnish him with parents, although poor Peter needed them about as much as we need last year's snow. She said that his father had been in Zaporozhye, and had been taken prisoner by the Turks, amongst whom he underwent God only knows what tortures, until having by some miracle disguised himself as a eunuch, he made his escape. Little cared the black-proud youths and maidens about Peter's parents. They merely remarked that if he only had a new coat, a red sash, a black lambskin cap with a smart blue crown on his head, a Turkish sabre by his side, a whip in one hand, and a pipe with handsome mountings in the other, he would surpass all the young men. But the pity was that the only thing poor Peter had was a grey gabardine with more holes in it than there are gold pieces in a Jew's pocket. But that was not the worst of it. Korts had a daughter such a beauty as I think you can hardly have chanced to see. My grandfather's aunt used to say, and you know that it is easier for a woman to kiss the evil one than to call anyone else a beauty, that this Cossack maiden's cheeks were as plump and fresh as the pinkest poppy when bathed in God's dew. It unfolds its petals and coquettes with the rising sun. But her brows were evenly arched over her bright eyes like black cords, such as our maidens buy nowadays for their crosses and ducats of the Moscow peddlers who visit the villages with their baskets. But her little mouth, at sight of which the youth smacked their lips, seemed made to warble the songs of nightingales, that her hair black as the raven's wing and soft as young flax fell in curls over her shoulders, for her maidens did not then plait their hair in pigtails interwoven with pretty bright-hued ribbons. Ah! May I never intone another alleluia in the choir 
if I would not have kissed her, in spite of the grey which is making its way through the old wool which covers my pate, and of the old woman beside me, like a thorn in my side. Ah, well, you know what happens when young men and maidens live side by side. In the twilight, the heels of red boots were always visible in the place where Pidorka chatted with her Peter. But Korts would never have suspected anything out of the way only one day. It is evident that none but the evil one could have inspired him. Peter took it into his head to kiss the maiden's rosy lips with all his heart, without first looking well about him, and that same evil one, may the son of a dog dream of the Holy Cross, caused the old greybeard like a fool to open the cottage door at that same moment. Kortz was petrified, dropped his jaw, and clutched at the door for support. Those unlucky kisses completely stunned him. Recovering himself, he took his grandfather's hunting whip from the wall and was about to belabor Peter's back with it, when Pidorka's little six-year-old brother Ivas rushed up from somewhere or other and grasping his father's legs with his little hands screamed out, Daddy, Daddy, don't beat Peter! What was to be done? A father's heart is not made of stone. Hanging the whip again on the wall, he led Peter quietly from the house. If you ever show yourself in my cottage again, or even under the windows, look out, Peter, for by heaven your black moustache will disappear, and your black locks, though wound twice about your ears, will take leave of your pate, or oh, my name is not Terenti Kotz. So saying, he gave him such a taste of his fist in the nape of his neck, that all grew dark before Peter, and he flew headlong out of the place. So there was an end of their kissing. Sorrow fell upon our turtle dove, and a rumour grew rife in the village that a certain pole, all embroidered with gold, with moustaches, sabre, spurs, and pockets jingling like the bells of the bag with which our sacristan Taras goes through the church every day, had begun to frequent Corsi's house. Now, it is well known why a father has visitors when there is a black-browed daughter about. So, one day, Pidorka burst into tears and caught the hand of her brother Ivas. Ivas, my dear, Ivas, my love, fly to Peter, my child of gold, like an arrow from a bow. Tell him all. I would have loved his brown eyes. I would have kissed his fair face, but my fate decrees otherwise. More than one handkerchief have I wet with burning tears. I am sad and heavy at heart, and my own father is my enemy. I will not marry the Pole whom I do not love. Tell him they are making ready for a wedding, but there will be no music at our wedding. Priests will sing instead of pipes and vials. I shall not dance with my bridegroom. They will carry me out. Dark, dark will be my dwelling of maple wood, and instead of chimneys, a cross will stand upon the roof. Peter stood petrified, without moving from the spot, when the innocent child lisped out Pidorka's words to him. And I, wretched man, had thought to go to the Crimea and Turkey, to win gold and return to thee my beauty, but it may not be. We have been overlooked by the evil eye. I too shall have a wedding, dear one, 
but no ecclesiastics will be present at that wedding. The black crow, instead of the pope, will call over me. The bare plain will be my dwelling, the dark blue cloud my roof tree. The eagle will claw out my brown eyes, the rain will wash my cossack bones, and the whirlwinds dry them. But what am I? Of what should I complain? Tis clear God willed it so. If I am to be lost, then so be it. And he went straight to the tavern. My late grandfather's aunt was somewhat surprised at seeing Peter at the tavern, at an hour when good men go to morning mass, and stared at him as though in a dream, when he called for a jug of brandy, about half a pailful. But the poor fellow tried in vain to drown his woe. The vodka stung his tongue like nettles, and tasted more bitter than wormwood. He flung the jug from him upon the ground. You have sorrowed enough, Cossack, growled a bass voice behind him. He looked round. It was Basavriuk. Ah, oh, what a face! His hair was like a brush, his eyes like those of a bull. I know what you lack. Here it is. As he spoke, he jingled a leather purse which hung from his girdle and smiled diabolically. Peter shuddered. Ha! 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 How it shines! He roared, shaking out ducats into his hands. Ha! 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 How it jingles! And I only ask one thing for a whole pile of such shiners. It is the evil one, exclaimed Peter. Give me them, I'm ready for anything. They struck hands upon it, and Bazavriuk said, You are just in time, Peter. Tomorrow is St. John the Baptist's day. Only on this one night in the year does the fern blossom. I will await you at midnight in the bear's ravine. I do not believe the chickens await the hour when the housewife brings their corn with as much anxiety as Peter awaited the evening. He kept looking to see whether the shadows of the trees were not lengthening, whether the sun was not turning red towards setting, and the longer he watched, the more impatient he grew. How long it was! Evidently God's day had lost its end somewhere, but now the sun has set, the sky is red only on one side, and it is already growing dark. It grows colder in the fields. It gets gloomier and gloomier, and at last quite dark. At last. With heart almost bursting from his bosom, he set out, and cautiously made his way down through the thick woods into the deep hollow called the Bear's Ravine. Bazavriuk was already waiting there. It was so dark that you could not see a yard before you. Hand in hand they entered the ravine, pushing through the luxuriant thorn-bushes and stumbling at almost every step. At last they reached an open spot. Peter looked about him. He had never chanced to come there before. Here Bazabriuk halted. Do you see before you three hillocks? There are a great many kinds of flowers upon them. May some power keep you from plucking even one of them. But as soon as the fern blossoms, seize it. And look not round, no matter what may seem to be going on behind thee. 
Peter wanted to ask some questions, but behold, Pazabriuk was no longer there. He approached the three hillocks, where were the flowers? He saw none. The wild steppe grass grew all around and hid everything in its luxuriance. But the lightning flashed, and before him was a whole bed of flowers, all wonderful, all strange, whilst amongst them there were also the simple fronds of fern. Peter doubted his senses and stood thoughtfully before them, arms akimbo. What manner of prodigy is this? Why, one can see these weeds ten times a day. What is there marvellous about them? Devil's face must be mocking me. But behold, the tiny flower bud of the fern reddened and moved as though alive. It was a marvel in truth. It grew larger and larger and glowed like a burning coal. The tiny stars of light flashed up. Something burst softly and the flower opened before his eyes like a flame, lighting the others about it. Now is the time, thought Peter, and extended his hand. He saw hundreds of hairy hands reach also for the flower from behind him, and there was a sound of scampering in his rear. He half closed his eyes and plucked sharply at the stalk and the flower remained in his hand. All became still. Upon a stump sat Pazabriuk, quite blue like a corpse. He did not move so much as a finger. His eyes were immovably fixed on something visible to him alone. His mouth was half open and speechless. Nothing stirred around. Ugh, it was horrible. But then a whistle was heard which made Peter's heart grow cold within him, and it seemed to him that the grass whispered, and the flowers began to talk among themselves in delicate voices, like little silver bells, while the trees rustled in murmuring contention. Bazabriuk's face suddenly became full of life, and his eyes sparkled. The witch has just returned, he muttered between his teeth. Hearken, Peter, a charmer will stand before you in a moment. Do whatever she commands. If not, you are lost forever. Then he parted the thorn bushes with a knotty stick, and before him stood a tiny farmhouse. Pazabriuk smote it with his fist, and the wall trembled. A large black dog ran out to meet them, and with a whine transformed itself into a cat and flew straight at his eyes. "'Don't be angry, don't be angry, you old Satan!' said Bazabriuk, employing such words as would have made a good man stop his ears. Behold, instead of a cat, an old woman, all bent into a bow, with a face wrinkled like a baked apple, and a nose and chin like a pair of nutcrackers. "'A fine charmer,' thought Peter.' and cold chills ran down his back. The witch tore the flower from his hand, stooped and muttered over it for a long time, sprinkling it with some kind of water. Sparks flew from her mouth, and foam appeared on her lips. Throw it away, she said, giving it back to Peter. Peter threw it. 
But what wonder was this? The flower did not fall straight to the earth, but for a long while twinkled like a fiery ball through the darkness, and swam through the air like a boat. At last it began to sink lower and lower, and fell so far away that the little star, hardly larger than a poppy seed, was barely visible. That croaked the old woman in a dull voice, and Bazabriuk, giving him a spade, said, Dig here, Peter, you will find more gold than you or God ever dreamed of. Peter spat on his hands, seized the spade, pressed his foot on it, and turned up the earth a second, a third, a fourth time. The spade clinked against something hard and would go no further. Then his eyes began to distinguish a small iron-bound copper. He tried to seize it, but the chest began to sink into the earth deeper, farther and deeper still, whilst behind him he had a laugh like a serpent's hiss. No, you shall not have the gold until you shed human blood, said the witch. And she led up to him a child of six, covered with a white sheet, and indicated by a sign that he was to cut off his head. Peter was stunned. A trifle, indeed, to cut off a man's or even an innocent child's head for no reason whatever. In wrath he tore off the sheet enveloping the victim's head, and behold, before him stood Ivas. The poor child crossed his little hands and hung his head. Peter flew at the witch with the knife like a madman, and was on the point of laying hands on her. What did you promise for the girl? thundered Bazabriuk, and like a shot he was on his back. The witch stamped her foot. A blue flame flashed from the earth and illumined all within it. The earth became transparent as if moulded of crystal, and all that was within it became visible as if in the palm of the hand. Ducats, precious stones in chests and pots, were piled in heaps beneath the very spot they stood on. Peter's eyes flashed, his mind grew troubled. He grasped the knife like a madman, and the innocent blood spurted into his eyes. Diabolical laughter resounded on all sides. Misshapen monsters flew past him in flocks. The witch, fastening her hands in the headless trunk like a wolf, drank its blood. His head whirled. Collecting all his strength, he set out to run. Everything grew red before him. The trees seemed steeped in blood and burned and groaned. The sky glowed and threatened. Burning points like lightning flickered before his eyes. Utterly exhausted, he rushed into his miserable hovel and fell to the ground like a log. A death-like sleep overpowered him. Two days and two nights did Peter sleep, without once awakening. When he came to himself on the third day, he looked long at all the corners of his hut, but in vain did he endeavour to recollect what had taken place. His memory was like a miser's pocket, from which you cannot entice a quarter of a kopeck. Stretching himself, he heard something clash at his feet. He looked. There were two bags of gold, then only, as if in a dream. He recollected that he had been seeking for treasure, and that something had frightened him in the woods. Quartz, 
saw the sacks and was mollified. A fine fellow, Peter, quite unequalled. Yes, and did I not love him? Was he not to me as my own son? And the old fellow repeated this fiction until he wept over it himself. Pidorka began to tell Peter how some passing gypsies had stolen Ivas, but he could not even recall him to such a degree had the devil's influence darkened his mind. There was no reason for delay. The pole was dismissed, and the wedding feast prepared. Rolls were baked, towels and handkerchiefs embroidered. The young people were seated at table. The wedding loaf was cut, guitars, cymbals, pipes, vials sounded, and pleasure was rife. A wedding in the olden times was not like one of the present day. And my grandfather's aunt used to tell how the maidens, in festive headdresses of yellow, blue, and pink ribbons, above which they bound gold braid, in thin chemisettes, embroidered on all the seams with red silk, and strewn with tiny silver flowers, in Morocco shoes with high iron heels, danced the Golitsa as swimmingly as peacocks, and as wildly as the whirlwind, how the youths, with their ship-shaped caps upon their heads, the crowns of gold brocade, and two horns projecting one in front and another behind, of the very finest black lambskin, in tunics of the finest blue silk with red borders, stepped forward one by one, their arms akimbo in stately form, and executed the gopak. How the lads, in tall Cossack caps, and light cloth gabardine, girt with silver embroidered belt, the short pipes in their teeth skip before them and talk nonsense. Even courts, as he gazed at the young people, could not help getting gay in his old age. Guitar in hand, alternately puffing at his pipe and singing, a brandy glass upon his head, the greybeard began the national dance amid loud shouts from the merrymakers. What will not people devise in merry mood? They even began to disguise their faces till they did not look like human beings. On such occasions, one would dress himself as a Jew, another as the devil. They would begin by kissing each other and end by seizing each other by the hair. Oh, God be with them. You laughed till you held your side. They dressed themselves in Turkish and Tatar garments. All upon them glowed like a conflagration, and then they began to joke and play pranks. An amusing thing happened to my grandfather's aunt, who was at this wedding. She was wearing an ample Tatar robe, and wine glass in hand was entertaining the company. The evil one instigated one man to pour vodka over her from behind, Another, at the same moment, evidently not by accident, struck a light and held it to her. The flame flashed up, and poor aunt, in terror, flung her dress off before them all. Screams, laughter, jests arose as if it appeared. In a word, the old folk could not recall so merry a wedding. Pidoka and Peter began to live like a gentleman and lady. There was plenty of everything, and everything was fine. But honest folk shook their heads, 
when they mark their way of living. From the devil no good can come, they unanimously agreed. Whence, except from the tempter of orthodox people, came this wealth? Where else could he have got such a lot of gold from? Why, on the very day that he got rich, did Bazabriok vanish as if into thin air? Say, if you can, that people only imagine things. A month had not passed, and no one would have recognized Peter. He sat in one spot saying no word to anyone, but continually thinking, and seemingly trying to recall something. When Pidorka succeeded in getting him to speak, he appeared to forget himself, and would carry on a conversation and even grow cheerful. But if he inadvertently glanced at the sack, Stop! Stop! I have forgotten! he would cry, and again plunge into reverie and strive to recall something. Sometimes, when he sat still a long time in one place, it seemed to him as though it were coming, just coming back to mind, but again all would fade away. It seemed as if he was sitting in the tavern. They brought him vodka, vodka stung him. Vodka was repulsive to him. Someone came along and struck him on the shoulder, but beyond that everything was veiled in darkness before him. The perspiration would stream down his face, and he would sit exhausted in the same place. What did not Pidoka do? She consulted the sorceresses, and they poured out fear and brewed stomachache. To pour out fear refers to a practice resorted to in case of fear. When it is desired to know what caused this, melted lead or wax is poured into water, and the object whose form it assumes is the one which frightened the sick person. After this, the fear departs. Sanyashnitsa is brewed for giddiness and pain in the bowels. To this end, a bit of stump is burned, thrown into a jug, and turned upside down into a bowl filled with water, which is placed on the patient's stomach. After an incantation, he is given a spoonful of this water to drink. But all to no avail. And so the summer passed. Many a Cossack had mowed and reaped. Many a Cossack more enterprising than the rest had set off upon an expedition. Flocks of ducks were already crowding the marshes, but there was not even a hint of improvement. It was red upon the steppes. Ricks of grain like Cossacks' caps dotted the fields here and there. On the highway were to be encountered wagons loaded with brushwood and logs. The ground had become more solid, and in places was touched with frost. Already had the snow begun to fall, and the branches of the trees were covered with rime like rabbit skin. Already on frosty days the robin redbreast hopped about on the snow heaps like a foppish Polish nobleman, and picked out grains of corn and children with huge sticks played hockey upon the ice, while their fathers lay quietly on the stove, issuing forth at intervals with lighted pipes in their lips, to growl in regular fashion at the orthodox frost, or to take the air and thresh the grain spread out in the barn. At last the snow began to melt, 
and the ice slipped away. But Peter remained the same, and the more time went on, the more morose he grew. He sat in the cottage as though nailed to the spot, with the sacks of gold at his feet. He grew averse to companionship, his hair grew long, he became terrible to look at, and still he thought of but one thing, still he tried to recall something and got angry and ill-tempered because he could not. Often, rising wildly from his seat, he gesticulated violently and fixed his eyes on something as though desirous of catching it. His lips moving as though desirous of uttering some long-forgotten word, but remaining speechless. Fury would take possession of him. He would gnaw and bite his hands like a man half crazy, and in his vexation would tear out his hair by the handful until, calming down, he would relapse into forgetfulness, as it were, and then would again strive to recall the past, and be again seized with fury and fresh tortures. What visitation of God was this? Pidorka was neither dead nor alive. At first it was horrible for her to remain alone with him in the cottage, but in course of time the poor woman grew accustomed to her sorrow, but it was impossible to recognize the Pidorka of former days. No blushes, no smiles. She was thin and worn with grief, and had wept her bright eyes away. One Someone who took pity on her advised her to go to the witch who dwelt in the bear's ravine, and enjoyed the reputation of being able to cure every disease in the world. She determined to try that last remedy, and finally persuaded the old woman to come to her. This was on St. John's Eve as it chanced. Peter lay insensible on the bench, and did not observe the newcomer, Slowly he rose and looked about him. Suddenly he trembled in every limb, as though he were on the scaffold. His hair rose upon his head, and he laughed a laugh that filled Pidorka's heart with fear. I have remembered, remembered, he cried in terrible joy, and swinging a hatchet round his head, he struck at the old woman with all his might. The hatchet penetrated the oaken door nearly four inches, the old woman disappeared, and a child of seven, covered in a white sheet, stood in the middle of the cottage. The sheet flew off. Ivas! cried Pidorka, and ran to him. But the apparition became covered from head to foot with blood, and illumined the whole room with red light. She ran into the passage in her terror, but on recovering herself a little, wished to help Peter in vain. The door had slammed to behind her, so that she could not open it. People ran up and began to knock. They broke in the door, as though there were but one mind among them. The whole cottage was full of smoke, and just in the middle where Peter had stood was a heap of ashes whence smoke was still rising. They flung themselves upon the sacks. Only broken potsherds lay there instead of ducats. The Cossacks stood with staring eyes and open mouths, as if rooted to the earth, not daring to move ahead. Such terror did this wonder inspire in them. I do not remember what happened next. Pidorka made a vow to go upon a pilgrimage, collected the property left her by her father, and in a few days it was as if she had never been in the village. Whither she had gone, no one could tell. 
officious old women would have dispatched her to the same place whither Peter had gone. But a Cossack from Kiev reported that he had seen in a cloister a nun withered to a mere skeleton who prayed unceasingly. Her fellow villagers recognized her as Pidorka by the tokens, that no one heard her utter a word, and that she had come on foot, and had brought a frame for the picture of God's mother, set with such brilliant stones that all were dazzled at the sight. But this was not the end, if you please. On the same day that the evil one made away with Peter, Pazavriok appeared again, but all fled from him. They knew what sort of a being he was, none else than Satan, who had assumed human form in order to unearth treasures. And since treasures do not yield to unclean hands, he seduced the young. That same year, all deserted their earthen huts and collected in a village. But even there, there was no peace on account of that accursed Bazabriok. My late grandfather's aunt said that he was particularly angry with her because she had abandoned her former tavern and tried with all his might to revenge himself upon her. Once the village elders were assembled in the tavern and, as the saying goes, were arranging the precedence at the table in the middle of which was placed a small roasted lamb, shame to say. They chattered about this, that, and the other, among the rest about various marvels and strange things. Well, they saw something. It would have been nothing if only one had seen it, but all saw it, and it was this. The sheep raised his head, his goggling eyes became alive and sparkled, and the black bristling moustache, which appeared for one instant, made a significant gesture at those present. All at once recognized Basabriuk's countenance in the sheep's head. My grandfather's aunt thought it was on the point of asking for vodka. The worthy elders seized their hats and hastened home. Another time, the church elder himself, who was fond of an occasional private interview with my grandfather's brandy glass, had not succeeded in getting to the bottom twice when he beheld the glass bowing very low to him. Satan, take you, let us make the sign of the cross over you. And the same marvel happened to his better half. She had just begun to mix the dough in a huge kneading trough, when suddenly the trough sprang up. Stop, stop, where are you going? Putting its arms akimbo with dignity, it went skipping all about the cottage. You may laugh, but it was no laughing matter to our grandfathers. And in vain did Father Athanasi go through all the village with holy water, and chase the devil through all the streets with his brush. My late grandfather's aunt long complained that, as soon as it was dark, someone came knocking at her door and scratching at the wall. Well, all appears to be quiet now in the place where our village stands, but it was not so very long ago my father was still alive, that I remember how a good man could not pass the ruined tavern which a dishonest race had long managed for their own interest. From the smoke-blackened chimneys, smoke poured out in a pillar, and rising high in the air rolled up like a cap, scattering burning coals over the step. And Satan, the son of a dog, should not be mentioned, sobbed so pitifully in his bed that the startled ravens rose in flocks from the neighboring oak wood and flew through the air with wild cries. End of section 13
Act 3 of The Inspector General by Nikolai Gogol, translated by Thomas Seltzer. Act 3. Scene. The same as in Act 1. Scene 1. Anna Andreevna and Maria Antonovna standing at the window, in the same positions as at the end of Act 1. There now, we've been waiting a whole hour, all on account of your silly prinking. You were completely dressed, but no, you have to keep on dawdling. Provoking, not a soul to be seen, as though on purpose, as though the whole world were dead. Now really, Mama, we shall know all about it in a minute or two. Avdatya must come back soon. Looks out of the window and exclaims, Oh, Mama, someone is coming! There, down the street! Where? Just your imagination again. Why, well, yes, someone is coming. I wonder who it is. A short man in a frock coat. Who can that be? Eh, hey, the suspense is awful. Who can it be, I wonder? Dobchinsky, Mama. Dobchinsky, your imagination again. It's not Dobchinsky at all. Waves her handkerchief. Oh, you! Come here, quick! It is Dobchinsky, Mama. Of course you've got to contradict. I tell you, it's not Dobchinsky. Well, well, Mama. Isn't it Dobchinsky? Yes, it is. I see now. Why do you argue about it? Calls through the window. Hurry up! Quick! You're so slow. Well? Where are they? What? I'll speak from where you are, it's all the same. What? He's very strict, eh? And how about my husband? Moves away a little from the window, exasperated. He's so stupid. He won't say a word until he is in the room. Scene 2. Enter Dobchinsky. Now tell me, aren't you ashamed? You were the only one I relied on to act decently. They all ran away, and you after them. Until now, I haven't been able to find out a thing. Aren't you ashamed? I stood godmother to your Vinichka and Lejanko, and this is the way you treat me. Godmother, upon my word, I ran so fast to pay my respects to you that I'm all out of breath. How do you do, Maria Antonovna? Good afternoon, Pyotr Ivanovich. Well, tell me all about it. What is happening at the inn? I have a note for you from Anton Antonovich. But who is he? A general? No, not the general. But ever he be as good as a general, I'll tell you. Such culture, such dignified manners. Ah, so he is the one my husband got a letter about. Exactly. It was Pyotr Ivanovich and I who first discovered him. Tell me, tell me all about it. It's all right now, thank the Lord. At first, he received Anton Antonovich rather roughly. He was angry and said the inn was not run properly, and he wouldn't come to the governor's house, and he didn't want to go to jail on account of him. 
But then, when he found out that Anton Antonovich was not to blame, and they got to talking more intimately, he changed right away, and thank heaven, everything went well. They've gone now to inspect the philanthropic institutions. I confess that Anton Antonovich had already begun to suspect that a secret denunciation had been lodged against him. I myself was trembling a little too. What have you to be afraid of? You're not an official. Well, you see, when a grand mogul speaks, you feel afraid. Oh, that's all rubbish. Tell me, what is he like personally? Is he young or old? Young. A young man of about twenty-three. But he talks as he were older. If you will allow me, he says, I will go there and there. Waves his hands. He does it all with such distinction. I like, he says, to read and write, but I am prevented because my room is rather dark. Oh, and what sort of a looking man is he? Dark or fair? Neither. I should say rather chestnut. And his eyes dart about like little animals. They make you nervous. Uh, let me see what my husband writes. Reads. I hasten to let you know, dear, that my position was extremely uncomfortable. But relying on the mercy of God, two pickles extra and a half portion of caviar, one ruble and twenty-five kopecks. Stops. I don't understand. What have pickles and caviar got to do with it? Oh, Anton Antonovich hurriedly wrote on a piece of scrap paper. Th there's a kind of bill on it. Oh, yes, I see. Goes on reading. But relying on the mercy of God, I believe all will turn out well in the end. Get a room ready quickly for the distinguished guest, the one with the gold wallpaper. Don't bother to get any extras for dinner, because we'll have something at the hospital with our Timmy Filipovich. Order a little more wine, and tell Abdulin to send the best, or I'll wreck his whole cellar. I kiss your hand, my dearest, and remain yours, Anton Skwoznektmukhanovsky. Oh my, I must hurry. Hello? Who's there? Mishka? Dobchinsky. Runs to the door and calls. Mishka! 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 Mishka enters. Listen, run over to Abdul and wait. I'll give you a note. She sits down at the table and writes, talking all the while. Give this to Sidor the coachman and tell him to take it to Abdul and bring back the wine. And get to work at once. Make the gold room ready for a guest. Do it nicely. Put a bed in it, a wash basin and pitcher and everything else. Well, I'm going now, Anna Andreyevna, to see how he does the inspecting. 
Go on, I'm not keeping you. Scene 3. Anna Andreevna and Maria Antonovna. Now, Mashenka, we must attend to our toilette. He's a metropolitan swell, and God forbid that he should make fun of us. You put on your blue dress with the little flounces. It's the most becoming. The idea, Mama! The blue dress? I can't bear it. Lopkin Topkin's wife wears blue, and so does Zemlyanka's daughter. I'd rather wear my flowered dress. Your flowered dress? Of course, just to be contrary. You'll look lots better in blue, because I'm going to wear my dun-colored dress. I love dun-color. Oh, Mama, it isn't a bit becoming of you. What, dun-color isn't becoming to me? No, not a bit. I'm positive it isn't. One's eyes must be quite dark to go with dun color. That's nice. Aren't my eyes dark? They're as dark as can be. What nonsense you talk. How can they be anything but dark when I always draw the Queen of Clubs? Why, Mama, you are more like the Queen of Hearts. Nonsense. Perfect nonsense. I never was a Queen of Hearts. She goes out hurriedly with Maria and speaks behind the scenes. The ideas she gets into her head. Queen of Hearts, heavens, what do you think of that? As they go out, a door opens through which Mishka sweeps dirt onto the stage. Osip enters from another door, with a valise on his head. Scene 4. Mishka and Osip. Where is this to go? In here. In here. <sighs> Wait. Let me fetch breath first. Lord, what a wretched life. On an empty stomach, any load seems heavy. Say, Uncle, will the General be here soon? What General? Your Master. My Master? What sort of a General is he? Isn't he a General? Oh, he's a General, only the other way round. Is that higher or lower than a real general? Uh, higher. Jeez, wheeze. That's why they are raising such a racket about him here. Look here, young man. I see you're a smart fella. Give me something to eat, won't you? There isn't anything ready yet for the likes of you. You won't eat plain food? When your master takes his meal, they you let you have the same as he gets. But have you got any plain stuff? We have cabbage soup, porridge and pie. That's all right. We'll eat cabbage soup, porridge and pie. We'll eat everything. Come, help me with the valise. Is there another way to go out there? Yes. They both carry the valise into the next room. Scene 5. The sergeants open both folding doors. Lestakov enters followed by the governor, then the superintendent of charities, the inspector of schools, Dobchinsky and Bobchinsky, with a plaster on his nose. The governor points to a piece of paper lying on the floor, and the sergeants rush to pick it up, pushing each other in their haste. Excellent institutions. I like the way you show strangers everything in your town. In other towns, they didn't show me a thing. In other towns? I venture to observe the authorities and officials look out for themselves more. Here, I may say, 
we have no other thought than to win the government's esteem through good order, vigilance, and efficiency. The lunch was excellent. I've positively overeaten. Do you set such a fine table every day? In honor of so agreeable a guest, we do. I like to eat well. That's what a man lives for, to pluck the flowers of pleasure. What was that fish called? Artime, running up to him. Nebardon. It was delicious. Where was it we had our lunch? In the hospital, wasn't it? Precisely in the hospital. Yes, yes, I remember. There were beds there. The patients must have gotten well. There don't seem to have been many of them. About ten are left. The rest recovered. The place is so well run, there is such perfect order. It may seem incredible to you, but ever since I've taken over the management, they all recover like flies. No sooner does a patient enter the hospital than he feels better, and we obtain this result not so much by medicaments as by honesty and orderliness. In this connection, May I venture to call your attention to what a brain-racking job the office of Governor is. There are so many matters he has to give his mind to just in connection with keeping the town clean and repairs and alterations. In a word, it is enough to upset the most competent person. But, thank God, all goes well. Another Governor, of course, would look out for his own advantage. But believe me, even nights in bed I keep thinking, Oh God, how could I manage things in such a way that the government would observe my devotion to duty and be satisfied? Whether the government will reward me or not, that, of course, lies with them. At least I'll have a clear conscience. When the whole town is in order, the streets swept clean, the prisoners well kept, and few drunkards, what more might I want? Upon my word, I don't even crave honors. Honors, of course, are alluring, but as against the happiness which comes from doing one's duty, they are nothing but dross and vanity. Artimi, aside. Oh, the do-nothing, the scoundrel! How he holds forth! I wish the Lord had blessed me with such a gift. That's so. I admit I sometimes like to philosophize, too. Sometimes it's prose, and sometimes it comes out poetry. Bobchinsky to Dobchinsky. How true, how true it all is, Pyotr Ivanovich. His remarks are great. It's evident that he is an educated man. Would you tell me, please, if you have any amusements here, any circles where one could have a game of cards? Governor, aside. Ahem. <clears throat> I know what you are aiming at, my boy. Aloud. God forbid! Why, no one here has even heard of such a thing as card-playing circles. I myself have never touched a card. I don't know how to play. I can never look at cards with indifference, and if I happen to see a king of diamonds or some such thing, I am so disgusted I have to spit out. Once... I made a house of cards for the children, and then I dreamt of those confounded things the whole night. Heavens! How can people waste their precious time over cards? Luka Lukic, aside. 
But he farrowed me out of a hundred rubles yesterday, the rascal. I'd rather employ my time for the benefit of the state. Oh, well, that's rather going too far. It all depends upon the point of view. If, for instance, you pass when you have to treble stakes, then of course... No, don't say that a game of cards isn't very tempting sometimes. Scene 6. The above, Anna Andreevna and Maria Antonovna. Permit me to introduce my family, my wife and daughter. Lestikov, bowing. I'm happy, madam, to have the pleasure of meeting you. Oh, our pleasure in meeting so distinguished a guest is still greater. Lestikov, showing off. Excuse me, madam, on the contrary, my pleasure is the greater. Impossible, you condescend to say it to compliment me. Won't you please sit down? Just to stand near you is bliss. But if you insist, I will sit down. I am so, so happy to be at your side at last. I beg your pardon, but I dare not take all the nice things you say to myself. I suppose you must have found traveling very unpleasant after living in the capital. Extremely unpleasant. I am accustomed, comprenez-vous, to life in the fashionable world and suddenly to find myself on the road in dirty inns with dark rooms and rude people. I confess that if it were not for this chance which... Giving Anna a look and showing off. Compensated me for everything. It must really have been extremely unpleasant for you. At this moment, however, I find it exceedingly pleasant, madam. Oh, I cannot believe it. You do me much honor. I don't deserve it. Why don't you deserve it? You do deserve it, madam. I live in a village. Well, after all, a village too has something. It has its hills and brooks. Of course, it's not to be compared with St. Petersburg. Ah, St. Petersburg. What a life, to be sure. Maybe you think I am only a copying clerk. No, I am on friendly footing with the chief of our department. He slaps me on the back. Come, brother, he says, and have dinner with me. I just drop in the office for a couple of minutes to say this is to be done so, and that is to be done that way. There's a rat of a clerk there for copying letters. He does nothing but scribble all the time. They even wanted to make me a college assessor, but I think to myself, what do I want it for? And the doorkeeper flies after me on the stairs with a shoe brush. Allow me to shine your boots for you, Ivan Alexandrovich, he says. To the governor. Why are you standing, gentlemen? Please, sit down. Together. Please, don't, don't trouble. Mind Our rank is such that we can very well stand. Please, sit down without the rank. The governor and the rest sit down. I don't like ceremony. On the contrary, I always like to slip by unobserved. But it's impossible to conceal oneself. Impossible. I no sooner show myself in a place than they say, There goes Ivan Alexandrovich. Once I was even taken for the commander-in-chief. The soldiers rushed out of the guardhouse and saluted. Afterwards, an officer, an, an intimate acquaintance of mine, said to me, Why, old chap, we completely mistook you for the commander-in-chief. Well, I declare. I know pretty actresses. I've written a number of vaudevilles, you know. I frequently meet literary men. I'm on an intimate footing with Pushkin. I often say to him, Well, Pushkin, old boy, how goes it? 
So-so, partner, he'd reply, as usual. <laughs> He's a great original. So you write, too? Oh, how thrilling it must be to be an author. You write for the papers also, I suppose? Yes, for the papers, too. I am the author of a lot of works. Uh, the Marriage of Figaro, Robert Le Diable, uh, Norma. Uh, I don't even remember all the names. I did it just by chance. I hadn't meant to write, but a theatrical manager said, Won't you please write something for me? I thought to myself, All right, why not? So I did it all in one evening, surprised everybody. I am extraordinarily light of thought. All that has appeared under the name of Baron Brambo was written by me, and uh, the Frigate of Hope, and the Moscow Telegraph. What? So you are Brambo? Why, yes. And I revise and whip all their articles into shape. Smirdin gives me 40,000 for it. I suppose, then, that Yuri Miroslavsky is yours, too? Yes, it's mine. I guessed at once. But, Mama, it says that it's by Zagoskin. There, I knew you'd be contradicting even here. Oh, yes, it's so. Uh, that was by Zagoskin. But there is another Yuri Miroslavsky which was written by me. That's right. I read yours. It's charming. I admit, I live by literature. I have the first house in St. Petersburg. It is well known as the house of Ivan Alexandrovich. Addressing the company in general. If any of you should come to St. Petersburg, do please call to see me. I give balls, too, you know. I can guess the taste and magnificence of those balls. Immense! For instance, watermelon will be served costing 700 rubles. The soup comes in the terrine straight from Paris by steamer. When the lid is raised, the aroma of the steam is like nothing else in the world. And we have formed a circle for playing whist. Uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the French, the English and the German ambassadors, and myself. We play so hard we kill ourselves over the cards. There's nothing like it. After it's over, I'm so tired, I run home up the stairs to the fourth floor and tell the cook, Here, Marushka, take my coat. <laughs> uh, what am I talking about? I forgot that I live on the first floor. Uh, one flight up costs me... Uh, my foyer before I rise in the morning is an interesting spectacle indeed. Counts and princes jostling each other and humming like bees. All you hear is bzz, bzz, bzz. Sometimes the minister. The governor and the rest rise in awe from their chairs. Uh, even my mail comes addressed to Your Excellency. And once I even had charge of a department. A strange thing happened. The head of the department went off, disappeared, no one knew where. Of course, there was a lot of talk about how the place would be filled, who would fill it, and all that sort of thing. There were ever so many generals hungry for the position, and they tried, but they couldn't cope with it. It's too hard. Just on the surface it looks easy enough, but when you come to examine it closely, it's the devil of a job. When they saw they couldn't manage, they came to me. In an instant, the streets were packed full with couriers. Nothing but couriers and couriers. Thirty-five thousand of them. Imagine, pray, picture the situation to yourself. Ivan Alexandrovich, do come and take the directorship of the department. I admit, I was a little embarrassed. I came out of my dressing gown. I wanted to decline, but I thought it might reach the Tsar's ears, and besides my official record... Very well, gentlemen, I said. I'll accept the position, I'll accept, so be it. But mind, I said, no, 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 look sharp is the word with me. Look sharp. And so it was. 
When I went through the offices of my department, it was a regular earthquake. Everyone trembled and shook like a leaf. The governor and the rest tremble with fright. Lestikov works himself up more and more as he speaks. Oh, I don't like to joke. I got all of them thoroughly scared, I tell you. Even the Imperial Council is afraid of me. And really, that's the sort I am. I don't spare anybody. I tell them all, I know myself. I know myself. I am everywhere. Everywhere. I go to court daily. Tomorrow they are going to make me a field marsh. He slips and almost falls, but is respectfully held up by the officials. Governor walks up to him, trembling from top to toe, and speaking with a great effort. Your ex 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 Listakov, curtly. What is it? Your ex 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 Lestikov, as before. I can't make out a thing, it's all nonsense. Your ex ex your excellence Your Excellency, wouldn't you like to rest a bit? Here's a room and everything you may need. Nonsense. Rest. However, I'm ready for a rest. Your lunch was fine, gentlemen. I am satisfied. I am satisfied. Declaiming. Labarden. <laughs> Labarden. He goes into the next room, followed by the governor. Scene 7. The same, without Lestikov and the governor. Bobchinsky to Dobchinsky. There's a man for you, Pyotr Ivanovich. That's what I call a man. I've never in my life been in the presence of so important a personage. I almost died of fright. What do you think is his rank, Pyotr Ivanovich? I think he's almost a general. And I think a general isn't worth the sole of his boots. But if he is a general, then he must be the generalissimo himself. Did you hear how he bullies the Imperial Council? Come, let's hurry off to Amos Fyodorovich and Korobkin and tell them about it. Goodbye, Anna Andreovna. Good afternoon, Godmother. Both go out. It makes your heart sink and you don't know why. We haven't even our uniforms on. Suppose after he wakes up from his nap he goes and sends a report about us to St. Petersburg. He goes out, sunk in thought, with the school inspector, both saying, Goodbye, Goodbye madam. madam. Scene 8. Anna Andreevna and Maria Antonovna. Oh, how charming he is. A perfect dear. Such refined manners. You can recognize the big city article at once. How he carries himself and all that sort of thing. Exquisite. I'm just crazy for young men like him. I am in ecstasies, beside myself. He liked me very much, though. I noticed he kept looking at me all the time. Oh, Mama, he looked at me. No more nonsense, please. It's out of place now. But really, Mama, he did look at me. There you go. For God's sake, don't argue. You mustn't, that's enough. What would he be looking at you for? Please tell me, why would he be looking at you? It's true, Mama. He kept looking at me. He looked at me when he began to speak about literature, and he looked at me afterwards, when he told me how he played whilst with the ambassadors. Well, maybe he looked at you once or twice, and might have said to himself, Oh, well, I'll give her a look. 
scene nine. The same and the governor. Shh. What is it? I wish I hadn't given him so much to drink. Suppose even half of what he says is true. Sunk in thought. How can it not be true? A man in his cups is always on the surface. What's in his heart is on his tongue. Of course he fibbed a little. No talking is possible without some lying. He plays cards with the ministers, and he visits a court. Upon my word, the more you think, the less you know what's going on in your head. I'm as dizzy as if I were standing in a belfry, or if I were going to be hanged. The devil take it. And I didn't feel the least bit afraid. I simply saw a high-toned, cultured man of the world, and his rank and titles didn't make me feel a bit queer. Oh, well, you women. To say women and enough said. Everything is froth and bubble to you. All of a sudden you blab out words that don't make the least sense. Worst you'd get would be a flogging, but it means ruination to the husband. Say, my dear, you are as familiar with him as if he were another Bobjinsky. Leave that to us. Don't bother about that. Glancing at Maria. We know a thing or two in that line. Governor to himself. Oh, what's the good of talking to you? Confound it all. I can't get over my fright yet. Opens the door and calls. Mishka, tell the sergeants, Sevistonov and Derzimoda, to come here. They are near the gate. After a pause of silence. The world has turned into a queer place. If at least the people were visible so you could see them. They are such a skinny, thin race. How in the world could you tell what he is? After all, you can tell a military man. But when he wears a frock coat, it's like a fly with clipped wings. He kept it up a long time in the inn. Cut off a lot of allegories and ambiguities so you couldn't make out head or tail. Now he's shown himself up at last. Spouted even more than necessary. It's evident that he's a young man. Scene 10. The same and Osip. All rush to meet Osip, beckoning to him. Come here, my good man. Hush. Tell me, tell me. Is he asleep? Uh, no, not yet. He's stretching himself a little. What's your name? Osip, madam. Governor. To his wife and daughter. That'll do, that'll do. To Osip. Well, friend, did they give you a good meal? Yes, sir, very good. Thank you kindly. Your master has lots of counts and princes visiting him, hasn't he? Osip, aside. What shall I say? Seeing as they've given me such good feed now, I suppose I'll do even better later. Aloud. Uh, yes, counts do visit him. Osip, darling, isn't your master just grand? Osip, please tell me, how is he? Do stop now. You just interfere with your silly talk. Well, friend, how? What is your master's rank? Uh, the, the usual rank. For God's sake, your stupid questions keep a person from getting down to business. Tell me, friend, what sort of a man is your master? 
Is he strict? Does he rag and bully a fellow? You know what I mean. Does he or doesn't he? Uh, yes, he likes things to be just so. He insists on things being just so. I like your face. You must be a fine man, friend. What? Listen, Osip, does your master wear uniform in St. Petersburg? Enough of your tattle now, really! This is a serious matter, a matter of life and death. To Osip. Yes, friend, I like you very much. It's rather chilly now, and when a man's traveling, an extra glass of tea or so is rather welcome. So, here's a couple of rubles for some tea. Osip, taking the money. Uh, thank you. Much obliged to you, sir. God grant you health and long life. You've helped a poor man. That's all right. I'm glad to do it. Now, friend? Listen, Osip. What kind of eyes does your master like most? Osip, hmm? darling, what a dear nose your master has. Stop now! Let me speak! To Osip. Tell me, what does your master care for most? I mean, when he travels, what does he like? Uh, as for sights, he likes whatever happens to come along. But what he likes most of all is to be received well and entertained well. Entertained well? Uh, yes, for instance, I'm nothing but a serf, and yet he sees to it that I should be treated well too. Help me, God! Say, we'd stop at some place, and he'd ask, Well, Ossip, have they treated you well? No, badly, Your Excellency. Ah, he'd say, Ossip, he's not a good host. Remind me when we get home. Oh, well, thinks I to myself. With a wave of his hand. I am a simple person. God be with them. Very good. You talk sense. I've given you something for tea. Here's something for buns, too. Uh, you are too kind, Your Excellency. Puts the money in his pocket. I'll be sure to drink your health, sir. Come to me, Osip, and I'll give you some, too. Osip, darling, kiss your master for me. Lestikov is heard to give a short cough in the next room. Hush. Rises on tiptoe. The rest of the conversation in the scene is carried on in an undertone. Don't make a noise, for heaven's sake. Go, it's enough. Come, Mashenka. I'll tell you something I noticed about our guest that I can't tell you unless we are alone together. They go out. Let them talk away. If you went and listened to them, you'd want to stop up your ears. To Osip. Well, friend. Scene 11. The same. Dershimorda and Svistanov. Shh. Bandy-legged bears. Thumping their boots on the floor. Bump, bump, as if a thousand pounds were being unloaded from a wagon. Where in the devil have you been knocking about? I had your order. Hush. Puts his hand over Dershimorda's mouth. Like a bull bellowing. Mocking him. I had your order. Makes a noise like an empty barrel. To Osip. Go, friend, and get everything ready for your master. And you two, 
You stand on the steps and don't you dare budge from the spot. And don't let any strangers enter the house, especially the merchants. If you let a single one in, I'll... The instant you see anybody with a petition or even without a petition and he looks as if he wanted to present a petition against me, take him by the scruff of the neck, give him a good kick. Shows with his foot. And throw him out. Do you hear? Hush, hush. He goes out on tiptoe, preceded by the sergeants. Curtain. End of Act Three.